Welcome to Rossing Connection, a podcast about all things Lehigh Engineering. Coming to you from the PC Rossing College of Engineering and Applied Science at Lehigh University. It's a show for students, alumni, faculty, and staff, current, former, and future, and for anyone who's interested in the many creative ways that engineers are solving the world's problems. I'm your host, Christine Fennessy. In today's show, I talk with Dr. David Adenero. He's an alum of the Healthcare Systems Engineering Program and the former vice president and chief medical officer of St. Joseph's University Medical Center in Patterson, New Jersey. Back in March, he just left that position, and the coronavirus was spreading fast through New Jersey. On Saturday, March 28th, he got a phone call. Would he be interested in being the chief medical officer of the field medical station Secaucus? He said yes before he even knew what the job would entail. The field medical station Secaucus was actually the Meadowlands Exposition Center. The huge space had been divided into rows and rows of temporary cubicles, enough for 250 people. The initial goal was to send non-COVID patients from area hospitals to the medical station for treatment so that hospitals could focus on caring for people with the virus. But pretty soon it was clear, there were hardly any non-COVID patients in the hospitals. So Dr. Adenero and his team quickly changed their mission they would treat the COVID convalescent, those who were in the last five to seven days of their hospital stay. On April 8th, the station accepted its first COVID patient, and eight days later, it accepted its hundredth. Dr. Adenero's team included Chief Nursing Officer Patty Drabick, medical personnel from the Army and Air Force National Guard, the New Jersey Office of Emergency Management, University Hospital in Newark, and more than 150 volunteer medical staff. Everyone worked long hours those first weeks, 14 to 16 hour days. On April 20th, the medical station hit its highest number of 82 patients. After that, the numbers started dropping as the virus itself started to wind down. And in early May, the entire operation moved. It's now in a former rehab hospital in East Orange, New Jersey. It's called East Orange Alternative Care Site. Dr. Adenero and his team are now in an actual building with doors, walls, elevators, and rooms with bathrooms, which means they can take care of patients with more complex nursing needs. And since there are multiple floors, they can also take care of patients with and without COVID. I talked to Dr. Adenero about a week after he and his team moved into the new building to understand what's next, what he's learned during the pandemic, and the important role he sees for systems engineering and healthcare. Well, Dr. Adenero, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. And I just want to start by asking, how do you sort of envision your role transitioning from what you were doing in Secaucus to what you'll be doing in this new building? That's a good question. So first of all, I, for this is a temporary position. These Facilities are technically temporary, though temporary may last for more than a year, or they may, you know, go into hibernation and then reopen if necessary. So I think from what the state's thinking about is there are several hurdles that are going to come up as the state of New Jersey reopens. Um, Number one, hospitals are going to need to start doing routine medical care. 
and taking care of patients who had, need elective surgery. And you have to understand that elective surgery was defined everything from a tummy tuck to an open heart bypass surgery. So hospitals need to reopen. And as they do, they may find themselves with not enough beds. So that can be an issue where we would have to step in. Uh, we know that as other countries have opened up, they've had resurgences of COVID cases. So the state is going to want to have facilities like this available as the, the restrictions loosen up and people go back to work and go back to school uh, in case more patients come. And then I think the the largest thing people are worried about, particularly in the Northeast, is this coming winter when you could have a confluence of both these COVID pneumonias along with our f- normal flu season. Uh, and they're very much concerned about what that would look like and the need to have the capacity to really ramp up quickly and be able to move patients out of the acute care hospitals so that they can take care of the influx of both influenza patients and also patients who might have COVID. Well, so you said that this is temporary. Does that, does it mean that you might still, however, stay through the winter in case there is this confluence of of flu and COVID? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know. Um, I think from a mission point of view, the things I want to accomplish are, number one, we need to make sure that this facility in East Orange is optimized, able to take care of a variety of patients. And I think also importantly that if we can help the state of New Jersey prepare for what might be the next influx. And that a lot of that is probably going to focus on training. Our staff of physicians and nurses are not people who typically worked in an inpatient environment. Uh, so we did a lot of very, very quick training and coaching. I think everybody in healthcare had to kind of move up to the next level. And we could spend the next few months getting a cadre of healthcare professionals ready for that, people who are interested in responding just like we had probably, I would say we probably had close to about 100 different types of healthcare professionals who came in in the last couple of months and helped us out during this emergency. Wow. Well, did what did you learn in the process of training all of these different individuals who who weren't used to working with this type of respiratory patient? Um, I think that the old adage, you can't judge a book by its cover, kind of came about. Uh, typically, in medicine that is particularly on the physician side and the provider side is highly specialized. So there's a lot of assumptions that, let's say, in a medical pandemic, which COVID was, that a internist or a family physician or an emergency physician, which is what I am, would be better equipped to handle uh, the care of the patient. Let's say a pediatrician who typically takes care of childhood diseases, or let's say a surgeon. And the interesting thing was some of the people who were some of our best providers didn't fit that category, that they were the school nurse who hadn't done anything in a hospital since their training in nursing school, or one of my main physicians at night is a vascular surgeon who does outpatient vein procedures mainly, and yet he became one of our core providers on the overnight dealing with patients with respiratory emergencies. So I think having an open mind and allowing everybody to uh, give a chance to to show their experiences and what their capacities are is incredibly important. Uh, I also think that you sometimes have to be able to walk away so that people have confidence in their own decision making. 
And I, I had to do that a lot in the very beginning so that the teams would get confidence taking care of a respiratory emergency and that they needed to be able to figure it out as a team. And so part of that was just stepping aside and letting them work through it, but at the same time, keeping a close eye on them. Oh, that must have been impressive. Well, I know that those first few days when patients were coming in must have been really intense, but can you kind of bring me into those early moments a little bit? So I think when you think back on it, I just remember just how happy every single person who was working there was. They all just totally got into the moment. They just pitched in and did everything that needed to be done. You didn't have divisions between military and non-military. You didn't have a division between a provider who's a physician and a provider who's a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. First of all, nobody knew anybody else. So one of the fun things that happened probably on day number two is suddenly everybody was writing their name and what their title was, what they did on their um, the outer portion of their blue surgical gown. Because remember, everybody that was inside the care area, you can't tell them apart. They're wearing a blue surgical gown that covers 90% of their body. They're wearing a N95 mask. They're wearing a surgical mask on top of that. And they're wearing an eye protection. They're wearing a, a shield in front of their face. So there's no distinguishing a nurse from a physician. So everybody started writing, you know, on mine it said David and then MD. And it was on both across my chest and on my right shoulder because that had become the tradition the day before. So that was the only way you could tell a physical therapist from a respiratory therapist, from a doctor, from a nurse, from a medic. But that was a very leveling thing. Um, I think the staff was very anxious when they took care of the first patient. The good news was our patients were generally COVID convalescent. So again, they were on the way to improving, but we had some patients who suddenly went from needing two liters of oxygen to turning blue and needing 25 liters of oxygen a minute. And the other part was just the reaction of the hospitals. We were literally taking their least complicated patients from them, and they were just happy that something was happening to give them some help. So that was nice. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine being part of such a force for good. <laughs> and so is there a moment that stands out from that time? I think there were I think there were about three moments that really will stand out for me in Secaucus in particular. The first one was they called a RT, which is a rapid response team. Um, that team generally consisted of uh, one or two nurses, a respiratory therapist, and a physician as the leader of it. And they called an RRT on a patient who was probably our first patient who was in fairly severe respiratory distress shortly after arriving. And there were probably 10 or 12 people in this room. And none of them, except probably for one, had any experience on taking care of medical emergencies. And my first instinct was to step in and take the lead. And then I realized they were working it out. And I basically stepped back and went across the six feet of the hallway and sat in an empty room and just watched them for 45 minutes. So that was one. Um, the second one was probably the first Monday. So it would have been five days after we took patients. We actually had an ice cream social. And we had the colonel of our National Guard team in you know, new PPE and 
wearing an apron and was, you know, giving out ice cream in our break area. So it was really neat to see that sense of community forming. And then the third one was not even a solid week after we took our first patient. I'm walking through the care area and I hear a nurse talking to another nurse. And basically the statement that the first nurse made was essentially, well, this is how we do things here. But she was saying it almost like she'd worked there for 10 years. And I was entirely fascinated by the fact that we had developed a culture where somebody would actually say, this is how we do things here. Considering none of us had been here more than a week prior, but it was that kind of, this is, we're a community and this is what we do really um, hit me. Wow. It must have made you feel so proud. Um, Yeah. I mean, we worked really hard. Um, At the same time, the, you know, your colleagues in the hospitals were doing much harder things. You know, I'm an emergency physician, so most of my emergency medicine colleagues were taking care of critical patients at a scale that, you know, maybe they would see in the course of a year, they would be seeing in the course of a week in terms of critical patients. Um, So, you know, to be on the other end of that was a little unusual for me. At the same time, to watch, you know, again, a school nurse um, dealing with a hypoxic patient and not running away, not getting overly nervous, not insisting that we have to transfer the patient out and really just hanging in there and taking care of the patient was really impressive. Yeah, that is so impressive. Well, I, I do want to just switch gears here a little bit to get a sense of how it is that you ended up where you are today. So as I understand it, you got your undergrad in psychology at Lehigh and went to Seton Hall to get a master's in education. So how did you end up in medicine and what, like, what was the attraction for you? Sure. So uh, when I graduated Lehigh, which is in 1988, my first job out of college was as a graduate assistant at Seton Hall, which I did for a year, which led to me working in the admissions office at Seton Hall while I was finishing my master's degree. And after being there for six or seven years, I enjoyed education. My father had been a professor of political science at Seton Hall. I loved the basketball team. I loved the admissions process. But I was really trying to figure out what I want to do in my life next. The thing that I had always done since I was younger, so I was 17, was I had been a volunteer on, on the first aid squad. And while I liked education, I loved what I did on Thursday nights when I was riding ambulances. So all I know is that there was a certain point in time where uh, in that year when I was working that I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then by May of the following year, I had quit my job to go and do the sciences I needed for medicine. So I uh, started medical school at the age of 30 at uh, New Jersey Medical School in Newark, finished that in the year 2000, and then did my uh, three-year residency uh, locally at Morristown uh, in emergency medicine. So I finished that at in 2003. Got it. Okay. So then in 2013, you were working at St. Joseph's University Medical Center and you went back to Lehigh to get your master's in healthcare systems engineering. And so what were you hoping to gain from that move? 
So at that point, I was again looking for something else. I had been doing a lot in terms of safety. I'd become very interested in high reliability at that point. And during that period, I was looking at if I was going to continue in administration and leadership, would I do an MBA? Would I do um, a master's in public administration? And then I saw that Lehigh had started a, a degree in healthcare system engineering. So I called up the person who was running the program. And then I think two weeks later, I was taking my first class. And so why did you think that a healthcare systems engineering mindset would be so important to a healthcare professional? I think legitimately healthcare as an industry, if you were to relate it to almost any other industry, is probably a generation behind when it comes to a systematic approach or the use of technology or the ability to analyze your own data to make decisions. So the ability to to understand how manufacturing or retail industry or service industries have applied system engineering to improve uh, their processes, to make them safer, to make them more reliable, uh, is incredibly important. Having said that, the large difference is obviously in healthcare, you're not making a widget and you don't always know what the individual patient's journey is going to be, which then leads it to be incredibly dynamic. So I think the idea of a program like healthcare system engineering, where you can marry the engineering aspects to exposure to the healthcare aspects, so the finance portions of it, the ability to work with healthcare providers and do a capstone project in an actual healthcare facility really gives you a fairly unique education and foundation for your growth. So you've said in the past that you think that there should be more physicians involved in leadership in healthcare. So why do you think that? And how do you think a program like HSE can help with that? Yeah. And, and so two things. One, I generally amend saying that we should have more physicians involved in leadership. Two, I think we need more healthcare providers. But specifically in the physician side, healthcare is dynamic and complex. But right now, healthcare is being asked to be highly collaborative. And, you know, if you look at any of the healthcare 2.0, if you're thinking about value-based purchasing or population health initiatives, it can't be that you look at this, the business of medicine separately from the delivery of care. And I feel very strongly that those who deliver the care need to be more a part of the decision-making and leadership process. So I think there's a lot of different ways you can get there. But for me, I think the understanding of the complexity of the system part of it, as opposed to just the financial part of it, is unique. And I think it's something that we need more of because particularly for physicians, physicians don't tend to understand how the healthcare system works through their training in medical school or residency. Um, and yet they need to understand more because you, you're not going to improve your work environment. You're not going to improve the care and safety of your patients unless you have a, a say and a role in those decisions that are made. And that's not saying that 
non-clinicians can't be good leaders. We've had many, many good leaders, and I've worked with many people who have no background in healthcare who become excellent administrators, but I do think you're going to need more physicians and more other healthcare leaders if you expect to reap the benefits of collaboration in healthcare. You've also talked about how frontline providers can get stuck in this mode of thinking that they just aren't doing enough and that you have even felt this way yourself. And so how have you come to reconcile that you are indeed doing enough and how have you been able to, and I don't know if you have, uh, but how do you try to perhaps uh, convey that to others around you? Um, I don't think personally I have reconciled myself to the idea that I've done enough. Um, But for me, I think the ability to reach out to my friends, to talk to, you know, other emergency physicians and nurses. And I have a niece who's a pediatric nurse who basically has been on a floor taking care of adult COVID patients, some of which have died, which is not a normal experience for a pediatric nurse. Um, And just making sure that they're taking care of themselves. I think the other part of it is for the frontline workers, for the healthcare providers, there's a certain amount of fear. And the fear is not just for their patients. There's a certain amount of personal fear of, am I brave enough to do this, even though it scares me and I might get hurt? We all know providers who have died, or we know of providers who have died, just like we know of family members in the community that have have died or become very ill. And I think the other part is most healthcare providers are very nervous about what if I bring this back to my family? And I think the inability to be able to talk to their family members about their fear of the risk for themselves and the fear of the risk that they might impose on them um, is a difficult burden for the healthcare providers. Plus, the vast majority of them have seen things that in a concentrated fashion that you wouldn't see in such a short period of time. And I think you have to remind the the providers that they do need to talk about it, that they do need to feel a strong sense of triumph in what they've done, and that there really is such thing as enough, and that occasionally it's okay to just stop and lose it for a little bit, or just take a break from reality and enjoy your family or enjoy reading a book, and then, you know, go back and do the best you can the next day. And I think for a lot of people, just reminding them of the incredibly great job they did during this and having them understand that. And do you also believe that of yourself? Um, Yeah, I, I think this was an incredible experience and I was in the place I needed to be. Um, but I think everybody, you'll always feel the is there something I could have done more? Or if I, for me, if I had been in the emergency department, would I have done something more than I did here? Um, and I think you just have to, at some point, go, you've done enough. Well, I I want to thank you for what you're doing. I, I you know, I think a lot of us have this idea in our head of if only I were this kind of person or had this type of skill, I could be this much more useful and, you know, I can't imagine what it must be like for someone with your skill set and capabilities and knowledge of just the extent of things to, to kind of lay that burden on yourself must be quite heavy at times. And, you know, just from my perspective, like, 
I want to say thank you for what you've done um, in in leading this team in this really important work. Thank you. You know, this is part of what I would do, right? The, the idea that I would not be involved in this would be an impossibility. I've spent my life in healthcare. I've spent my life in emergency response. There was nowhere I was going to be but somewhere involved in this. But I have been so impressed by people who stayed home, people who clapped in New York for healthcare providers, um, the people who brought us ice cream, the, you know, honestly, the logistics personnel, the people who delivered us stuff. You know, literally, there was not a vendor we worked with who could do enough for us. If you asked them for one thing, you got 10. If you asked them for, I need something by tomorrow, they'd like, they'd be like, can I drive it tonight? Um, there were a lot of people who don't normally do this, who willingly stepped up and did it, including staying home, which was incredibly important to us. Um, I wanted you all home because we needed you all home to take care of everybody else. And that, that was very impressive, I will say. That's it for today's show. When this episode was recorded, Dr. Adenero and his staff, who now number about 50, had treated and released 300 patients since April 8th. And there were 20 patients at the new facility in East Orange. I'd like to thank Dr. Adenero for being so generous with his time and for the critical work that he and his staff are doing every day. In an upcoming episode, I'll talk with Sabrina Jedlica, She's the Associate Chair and Associate Professor in the Department of Materials Science and Engineering. And on July 1st, she'll start a new position as Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. Ross and Connection is produced by me, Christine Fennessy, with support from the Dean's Office at the PC Rawson College of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information about academic programs, head to engineering.lehigh.edu. Music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Send us story suggestions or feedback on Twitter at Rawson Podcast. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. <laughs>